welcome back to the Cinema Talk Movie Journal's fourth annual Top 20 Films of the Year. Uh, this is, of course, by looking at the title and when it's coming out, the Top 20 Films of 2020. Uh, very our, our favorite episode to record every year. Uh, but there is a we, we have a plus one. We have a we have a third wheel this a time. Spicy so twist. I'm, I'm Ryan. I'm Matthew. And I'm Logan. And uh, yeah, so we are back, like I said, for our favorite thing to record every year. We put so much time and effort into watching as many movies as possible. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't hit my 100 movie goal. I actually didn't even get any close to it that I said at the <laughs> end of last year. But that's okay. Uh, we're still here to talk about our favorite movies of the year. So, um, real real quick, guys, let's just uh, let's start this off with, uh, you know, let's talk about 2020 a little bit. Everyone knows what mm. happened this past year. But in terms of the movie landscape, uh, what are you, just what are your guys' overall takes on 2020 as a year in film? And do you think that it is better, worse than other years. Uh, What's your take on this past year? Good God. It's been a year. It's been a year, Floyd. I can't, when you said fourth annual at the top of this recording, my goodness, I can't believe this is the fourth time we're doing this. Yes, plus fifth if you count the uh, best of the decade. Sure, yeah, yeah. So uh, all the way back from 2017. Oh my gosh. Yeah, this is great. Very excited to do this and very excited that Logan could join us um, and was able to watch all these movies. Uh, to be able to be on here but yeah i mean 2020 what else needs to be said possibly the most probably the most tumultuous years of our lives so far politically globally what have you um at the start at the at the start of our our last year's podcast we talked a lot about what movies we're excited for in 2020s and you know we were talking about dune mostly we were talking about these movies that were expected to drop last winter and of course obviously those did not come out and they've been pushed back along with all the other delays um but even with that and even with the massively ever-changing landscape of streaming and movies and tvs um there were still a surplus of fantastic movies out this year all of which, most of which I watched in the month of December, as I do usually. I'm very lazy and procrastinate all of it until the very last month, and then I cram it in. Thankfully, the conditions of this year, being all of us at home most of the time, allowed for a lot more movies to be seen. Actually, this year, I've seen 54 movies, which is... Oh, uh, I still beat you. Let's movies. go. Yeah, Floyd still beat me, but only by a couple, and this only is usually very good. Because usually I only see like 30 or something. Because uh, I'm not great at keeping up with everything, but I had obviously a lot of extra time on my hands this year, so I've seen a bunch. Yeah, all right. I know. Um, I know. COVID nineteen has been a really bad thing for the world. However, I think it's made it easier for me to watch a lot of these movies, and I definitely would. I think I have forty on my letterbox list right now, which is you know far far above what I would have in a normal year. Um, and yeah, so I. It's made it easy for me because I don't have to go to the theater and pay like $20 every time I want to see a movie. Um, I can just kind of, I can watch it at home. I can knock out several in a day. Um, and so that's, uh, that, that's been nice for me. Um, yeah, with kind of restarting the podcast and getting a Letterboxd account and being absolutely like, I love Letterboxd. I spend so much time there. I Like Same. more time, more time than like any other social network. Like I spend more time there than Facebook. Um, Why is Facebook your default number two? <laughs> That's boomer. Jesus. Seriously. I'm a boomer. Oh my well, God. I don't. I don't have a personal um, Instagram account. I would only. The only Instagram account I have is at Twisted Mug Media, which you can uh, go yes. follow right now. The only one you need. The only one that you need. It's the uh, only Instagram in the world, actually. 
<laughs> yeah, we deleted all the other ones. Yeah, we, we, it's just us now. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think it's been, just Letterboxd has been, to, to plug it a little more, it's just been a great way for me to keep track of what I'm watching and, and to make this list and sort of sort it out. Um, I know in a little bit you guys are going to be giving some honorable mentions, uh, not to jump ahead too much, but uh, I'm not going to do that because I have all of my films from 2020 that I've watched uh, in a ranked list on Letterboxd. And as soon as this episode goes up, I will publish that list so you'll be able to mm-hmm. see you know, my 21 through however many I, I end up seeing. Great. Um, yeah, no, I think that this was actually a great year for film. Um, I think it's, uh, it was obviously a terrible year for the industry. Um, no money flow really whatsoever. So that was a lot of people lost their jobs. The only thing really getting worked on is the blockbusters. But in terms of movies that we got to see, the movies that got really pushed to the forefront because those blockbusters were gone are all the tiny movies that we probably wouldn't have been able to talk about or only been able to talk about a few of, um, because of the uh, rigmarole of the blockbuster cinema, the way it's going. So we didn't, you know, while I was excited for Dune, and I'm still very excited for Dune, and I'm still banking on that that being the greatest movie of all time, <laughs> you know, that didn't take up two weeks of discourse this year. Um, and instead, of hopefully that's still coming out in October, uh, crossing our fingers on that one. Uh, eight months from now, hopefully we'll be able to see that movie finally. But um, but no, yeah, there's a lot of movies on my list. Um, I Do I have, I don't know, how many studio films do I have on my list? I have two? I have, like, two studio films on my list. What, what, what's defined as studio? Like, would A24 count? I mean, like, like what? I mean, like, blockbusters. Like, one of no. the major, major film releases of the year that you would say. Like, any any given year, this would be a major film release. Yeah, no, it's been, it's certainly, what you said, it, This the format of this year has certainly allowed for smaller films to be championed, and a lot of those that maybe I, that I wouldn't have been able to see as easily I was able to watch um and you know even talking about the Oscars race the movies that are in contention some of them being smaller ones that probably wouldn't be considered in other years very interesting I I find I actually love it I I think for a one year um kind of change of pace it's been nice it's um like I said obviously for the industry it's terrible um and as someone who would like to possibly work in the industry you know that's not great but in terms of the movies that i got to consume and get to talk, got to talk about i think it was a very very excellent year and i'm very excited to jump into our top 20 i don't uh in previous years i had done my least favorite of the of the year um but honestly this year i only had a few that i really disliked and i just kind of want to get away from that uh that negativity so i'm not going to do any of my worst of the year yeah if you if you really want to see what i think the worst of the year you can really sort my letterboxed on the movies that I watched of 2020 and if you're really that dedicated to seeing my worst movies of the year you can do it that way and we should um, say we keep talking about our letterboxed accounts the easiest way to find all of our accounts is to go to uh, the cinema talk podcast letterbox page and there you'll find links to all of our individual accounts so just wanted to put that out there at the top of the show here absolutely and we all are letterbox shills we love it uh, one of it's my favorite memes that I've seen recently is who needs a boyfriend slash girlfriend if you have letterboxed <laughs> Exactly. You know, who needs it? It's just it's just letterbox. It's always there for you. It's a warm hug of a website. <laughs> um <laughs> always get to stalk what your friends are watching. It's great. Um so yeah, Matt, I guess let's uh let's start off with some honorable mentions. Uh, it's always a good place to start. So uh hit us up with some of your honorable mentions for twenty twenty. Yeah, so as opposed to the previous years where I could, you know, kind of 
barely squeezed in a 20 best movies of the year. I had just a surplus. I could have done a top 25, maybe even a top 30 of the year. So I'm going to have, I think, 11 honorable mentions. I'm just going to run through them pretty quick. Um, so I've got Palm Springs. I've got Miranda July's Kajillionaire. I've got Cooper Rafe's Shit House. I've got uh, Swallow by Carlo Mirabella Davis. Um, I've got She Dies Tomorrow, directed by Amy Zemitz. I've got Emma, uh, the Pablo Lorraine one. I just watched it this morning. Fantastic. I have Tesla, uh, starring our very beloved Kyle MacLachlan and uh, Ethan Hawke. I have Blackbird. I have The Five Bloods. I have The Climb. I have Impetigore. And um, Strasbourg 18, or Strasbourg 1518, something I just want to highlight real quick, is a short film directed by Jonathan Glazer, director of Under the Skin, Desire, and Sexy Beast. Uh, very interesting guy, does a lot of cool commercials as well. Uh, this was a short film that he made in quarantine in collaboration with some dancers to mimic the um, dancing uh, pandemic, whatever you have you, that happened in 1518 that overtook a town, supposedly. I don't know, very cool mm. thing. It's available online, Strasbourg 1518. Definitely check it out. So those are my awesome. honorable mentions. Well, very cool. I haven't seen most of those. Um, so I only have six honorable mentions. Um, actually, I'll throw a seventh in there that I don't have on this letterbox list for myself. So I'll start at the bottom. Basically, just real quick, if you listen, I'm just going to go reverse order from 27 to 21. So I'm basically giving you a top 27 of the year. Um, so my honorable mentions are The Lodge, a very good horror movie from earlier this year that actually on rewatch, I think might have pushed its way into my top 20. Uh, Mank, First Cow, Shirley, The Way Back, Bad Education, and my number 21 that I really want to shout out. Um, very nearly made my list, and I think is a very interesting film that more people should be watching and talking about, is Black Bear, uh, directed by Lawrence Michael Levine, starring Aubrey Plaza. I think Aubrey Plaza should get an Oscar nomination for this film. I think she is absolutely fantastic. Um, I don't want to spoil necessarily what the whole point of the film is, but basically, Aubrey Plaza is a young director uh, uh, going to this couple's big like mansion in the woods, uh, and basically she throws a wrench kind of in their relationship. And I, I won't get into anything of what the movie's about, but I really wanted to recommend and push Black Bear, even though I couldn't get it into my top 20. But all the rest of those movies, again, The Lodge, Mank, First Cow, Shirley, The Way Back, and Bad Education, all really, really great movies. Specifically The Way Back, also I think uh, I think Ben Affleck deserves a Best Ask, uh, Actor nomination uh, for that film, because he's fantastic. So uh, Yes, and I actually have one more that I want to add into here. A um, little bit of a different format. But in a year when the lines between TV between what a TV show is and between what a movie is have become increasingly blurred. I wanted to give a shout-out to the Euphoria Part 1 special episode, Trouble Don't Last Always. Um, this was the special episode that was kind of released in the interim between Season 1 and Season 2, the break that was caused by COVID-19, uh, directed by Sam Levinson. This is the one that stars basically just two actors. The whole 50-minute uh, special is a conversation between Zendaya and Coleman Domingo, and it was mm. absolutely beautiful and the way that they use their resources um you know filming in the time of a pandemic to take a moment to slim the show down from its often very crazy grandiose episodes into just a conversation between two people um it was beautiful showcase of acting and also just an amazing eulogy and therapy session for everything that 2020 was uh Mm. i wept absolutely beautiful zendaya is a master. Um, that's a great recommendation. I do want to real quick give a caveat for what I haven't seen because I haven't seen some big movies this past year. I really wanted to cram them in, but my uh, 
my schedule has been kind of crazy lately, and I haven't been able to squeeze in uh, the following films. I haven't seen Nomadland, Minari, Another Round, um, one film, one small film that Matt's going to talk about that I'll skip, um, Mangrove, uh, the, the small axe film by Steve McQueen, and 40-Year-Old Version. So those were all films that I really wanted to squeeze in, but unfortunately they were not. And because of Minari's and Nomadland's, a weird release strategy. I'm going to now count them for next year if I like them enough. So because they're coming out in February for real, uh, I'm going to count Nomadland and Minari at, for myself as 2021 movies. Yeah, and I also had um, a, a couple that you guys, I'm sure, are going to bring up later in the episode. Um, but one that I think just looks really fascinating is The Father with Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman. I think this looks really cool, um, and I, I can't wait for it to come out on streaming. But yeah, I'm really bummed I couldn't um, find any way to watch it to to get it on this list yeah there were a bunch that i missed this year unfortunately but some that i'll highlight are boy state uh black bear pieces of a woman the nest mangrove um the wolf of snow hollow la casa lobo bloody nose empty pockets crestone trial the chicago seven uh 14 the truth there were so many that I, I really wanted to catch but i just wasn't able to but happy with what i have me too. Yeah, ultimately, I'm okay with... Uh, it is the middle of February, so it's probably time to do this list anyway. Yes, it um, is. So I figured, you know what? I can make the excuse to... I can find a way to contort to hopefully get Nomad, Land, and Minari in my to- top 20 of 2021 if I enjoy them enough for that. So no guarantee that I will, but I hope I will. They, they, from everything I've heard, they sound great, and I wonder maybe they'll come up on this podcast. Um, so let's, let's get underway. So we don't know how long, how many uh, picks we're going to have in this because it's all dependent on how long a conversation is. We don't want to post a four-hour podcast. Um, so we'll cut it off wherever we need to. But uh, Logan, we'll start with you with your number 20 film of 2020. Yes. yes. My number 20. I'm, I'm, first of all, can I just say I'm so excited to be on this episode. I love listening yes. to these. I'm always amazed with how many movies you guys have seen. And now I'm like, I'm pretty much in that range. So I'm, I'm really excited to get into this. My number 20 is uh, a Netflix film, and it's called The Half of It. Uh, I think you guys might have seen this, both of you. Yeah. Very good film, yeah. Yeah, it's it's really cute. It's like this, um, it's just a very, you know, there's a lot of heart in it, um, sort of this teenage drama, and there's some elements where it sort of starts to go into, like, the, the typical, you know, traps that, like, Teen, you know the the Riverdale traps that these um, you know teen, teen dramas can tend to start to slip into, but overall it really doesn't. I think it, it's it's a film that seems very mature uh, beyond its years, beyond the years of of the actors. Um, and yeah, I think it it's very wise and it has a lot of really good things to say. Um, I, I watched this movie and then I recommended it to my parents, and as the 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 ending didn't really like hit me completely the first time. But the second time I watched the ending, um, with like just I walked into the rooms, my parents were finishing the movie. The second time I watched the ending, I was weeping. This is this is such a beautiful ending, um, really cute. I love uh, the dynamic between um, the sort of love triangle at the center of it. Uh, so yeah, number twenty is the half of it. It's on Netflix. Yeah, it's a I really have good seen film. that movie. Um, I thought it was all right. wasn't crazy about it. Um, I, I loved the uh, Colin Chow who played the father of. Ellie in that movie. Yes. I thought that, that relationship was probably my favorite thing about the movie. Very beautiful. Um, good old Paul, Himbo Paul in that movie was very enjoyable to watch. It was it was a fun watch. And definitely, I would say, had a, mu- a lot more sensitivity than your typical Netflix YA fare. Yeah. Absolutely. Not going to make my list, but should have been an honorable, honorable mention now that I think about it. 
All right, so I think it's coming around to me now. Um, okay, I like Logan. I'm so excited to do this. So uh, my number 20 pick. Um, I can't think of a better movie that captures uh, the fear, the the otherworldly supernatural terror of 2020 and directly mirrors what we're doing right now, talking on Zoom, than Host, directed by Rob Savage. Um, this is a lean 56-minute uh, small horror film. Um, it's out there on Shudder if you have a subscription to Shudder. Um, basically, very simple horror movie premise. It's set during the pandemic. Uh, four friends are having their typical, um, you know, once a week checkup over Zoom to have fun and while they're remaining socially distanced in their houses like we've been doing this entire year. And uh, typical horror movie plot, uh, for their one Zoom meeting, they invite a, um, a fortune teller on and they're supposed to have some sort of seance and then, of course, things go wrong. And this film so cleverly utilizes the Zoom format. Like Searching, it's a movie that takes place completely on a computer, but, but completely on Zoom. So it's constantly switching between you know the different formats and what. So they, they filmed it in a way that they could be safe during the pandemic. Um, and, and it really results in what I thought to be a very creative film. And one that very cleverly uses, utilizes all these resources and actually creates some very effective scares. Um, you know, Maybe not a movie that'll stay with you or rock you like the terrors of midsummer or the lighthouse but it, it, it's something that i found to be a very fun a very clever watch um and i like movies that are very much so a time capsule of a certain era and i think looking back uh 20 years from now in this movie it'll be interesting to see uh, what kind of films were being made during this time period and how people were reflecting what was going on yeah that was a that was a film that i'm bummed that i missed because i i know that it is like you said a very much a time capsule for this year and i've heard it like you said it was actually quite good beyond that um so like we like to do on this show uh and i like to do it always with my first film i'm gonna use a little clip from the trailer of my number 20 film to introduce it so enjoy this clip this is dope this one? Yeah. Yeah, it sort of just looks like a bunch of scribbles and dicks. When you get older, you realize that's kind of all life is. It's just a bunch of scribbles and dicks and violence all in a void. Zeke was my sister's ex-boyfriend. He was the man. You gotta jerk off before you go fuck a girl. I jerked off before I picked you up. So I would be prepared. I don't know where the fuck we're going tonight. And he made me feel like the man. Fuck yeah! Mo, got a home run! Who's gonna drink it? Hold on, what's in that? Whiskey, beer, cough syrup, and Zanny Bar. Oh, damn. Oh. <laughs> oh. That's my dude. You meet some punk, and you have no idea at the time that he's gonna be parked in front of your house every day for the rest of your goddamn life. <laughs> You should be making friends your own age. I like hanging out with you. This weekend, Paul's house, it's so on. You should sell my pot at your party. You think I'm just gonna walk into a party and everyone's gonna wanna buy pot for me? Call me crazy. Who's ready to party? You're acting real silly right now, all right? That chick is like 16 years old. Nick, I'm 16. Exactly. What? Kids are supposed to make mistakes. That's what the whole point of being a kid is. 
Yo, I think it's time. What the? F you permanently inked Tongue Daddy to your skin. What does that even mean? Oh my God. So as you heard there, Jason Orley's Big Time Adolescence is my number 20 film of the year. I know that both of these gentlemen have not seen it, according to their letterboxed. Um, you heard the great Pete Davidson there in his, the better of his two films this year. Um, Griffin Gluck is the star of this film. He plays Monroe, uh, basically a 16-year-old, um, or actually he goes by Mo in the film, 16-year-old um, who becomes friends, with, as you heard there in the trailer, becomes friends with Pete Davidson, um, who is the ex-boyfriend of her, his older sister, um, and they go through a lot of, um, you know, seemingly not so great things, getting uh, high, getting drunk, selling weed at parties, those kind of things. Um, kind of getting, getting uh, it's about a, a young man getting roped into um, the kind of Pete Davidson uh, persona. And what I really appreciated this film, a little more than The King of Staten Island, which is another film that I enjoyed, um, is that it really, it, it sees Pete Davidson break down his, his persona a little more and really, like, grapples with whether or not um, that persona that he portrays is very healthy um, to, to then influence young people. And like a lot of the films on my list this year, this is very much a story about growing up, um, a story about realizing the path that you're going down and changing it. And I think that that is a very um, worthy story no matter when it's told. Um, and is specifically in Jason Orley's hand, I think this is a, uh, I believe this is his directorial debut, came out on Hulu this year, which I, I guess we should start, yeah, we should always try to plug where you can see these, because most of our movies are out on streaming, so yes, you can see this on Hulu, this is a Hulu original, fuck, it's a Disney movie, um, <laughs> but, um, it's a very sweet film. John Cryer probably gives one of the better supporting performances of the year as Moe's father. Um, and I also want to just take this opportunity um, to shout out um, Sydney Sweeney, who is in the film, who is also the star of um, uh, Professor Ahead in the Fall or Gene Gallagher's film, Clementine, which I'm not going to put on my list because I know her, um, so I, I wouldn't want to do that. But I also want to shout out uh, Clementine by Laura Jean Gallagher. You should all go rent that, um, and I'm shilling for that because I like my Professor Gallagher. She was she was awesome, and go watch her movie, even though I'm not going to put it on my list. So, uh, yeah, number 20 for me, Big Time Adolescence. Yeah, I have not seen that one. I kind of... I really don't like Pete Davidson and what you're talking about, that persona. I, I just really dislike, so I usually stay away from his movies. But if it's something that kind of, you know, as you said, deconstructs and analyzes in a certain way, then, you know, maybe, maybe I'll give it a look. Definitely worth... Definitely... It's only 90 minutes, too. It's very short. Worth your time. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, that seems very interesting, but I also have not seen it. Okay, my number 19. Uh, one that I, I suspect will come up later, but I actually don't know. Uh, it is Minari. Um, this is a very good film. Um, it, this year, I sort of started to get into, uh, you know, a lot more indie stuff. I think most years, I normally just watch uh, kind of the blockbusters. And like you said, Floyd, this... This lockdown has made it a lot easier for these um, for these uh, indie films to get a lot more attention, um, and so you know I think that this is a very it, it's kind of it's kind of unlike anything I've ever seen um, in a certain way, but you know it's very very uh, familiar in some ways. It it's it's got these you know it kind of invokes this feeling of of home. Um, and you know identity and what and what it means to um you know kind of make a life for yourself and it's it's a lot of these um 
you know, kind of abstract themes that I just think are put together in a really, um, a really sort of relatable and approachable way. Um, I, I love the kid in this. I love the child actor in this movie. And, so cute. And if you know me at all, you know that that is such a rare thing for me to say. I'm most of the time, I hate children in movies. I hate their performances almost always. And this kid, um, I, I want to find out what his name is because I want to just give him a shout out. But he's, he's so uh, uh, charming. Um, especially there's a certain scene with, with Mountain Dew. Uh, that's very, that's very <laughs> memorable. Um, so yes, Minari gets my number 19. Um, that kid is named Alan Kim and he does a great job. Yes. Very, very cute movie for sure. All right. Moving into my number 19 pick. I'm going to introduce this movie, uh, with a clip from it. So enjoy this. Remember the voice in your head? The one that said, Sneak away. Here is the place it came from. So what you just heard there was a clip from Wendy, uh, the film that came out this year, directed by Ben Zeitlin, director of the much-lauded Beasts of the Southern Wild that came out a couple of years ago or so. This movie was slammed by critics, um, and just kind of unanimously across the board um, decried as a pretty embarrassing sophomore effort from Ben. And I could not disagree more. I thought that this movie, which I should say, it's a sort of reimagining of the Peter Pan story kind of told through the viewpoint of Wendy and set in um, a sort of uh, marshy, um, in the South Alabama environment, which the Beast of the Southern Wild kind of uh, was set in as well. Um, so it's a sort of modern day, I guess you could say, a reimagining of Peter Pan and I found this film to be absolutely beautiful. Um, I, I love emotion in films. I love when a film can be so unashamedly and just so bald-faced, just like this, uh, it's sentimental. And I love when a movie doesn't have to hide that. And this movie doesn't at all, which I, I found to be very endearing. Speaking of child actors, this movie is populated by entirely uh, child actors. And I thought they all did fantastic work there were so many scenes of just pure joy of these of these children running around on on this island that peter pan has led them to 
And the way that he plays around with this environment, these old rusted train tracks and coral reefs, uh, the imagery in this movie is beautiful. There's a scene with this whale that lives underneath the sea and just at some of the most imaginative cinematography I've ever seen. Um, I thought this film was absolutely stunning. Uh, definitely go check this out. Um, I, I don't know why it got slammed so hard. I really do. I, I do think that th there were some points. The story does meander at times. I will not lie at all. It does at, at times delve into directions that I didn't really care about. I wasn't that emotionally invested in certain older characters in the story. But I was always, always, always emotionally attached to the children. And the ending just made me weep. And it's about growing up, pushing pushing adulthood far far as ways far as ways we can when we're children but then also really realizing that at a certain time we have to accept that and um making the most of it and i, I love, i'm a sucker for any good coming of age you know the innocence of youth story and this was exactly that through a very fantastical lens this is available on hbo max definitely go check it out beautiful score as well yeah another one i haven't seen um like we said uh, off mic, I don't think there's going to be a, a ton of crossover on our list this year. Um, but yeah, coming in at number 19 for me is another Hulu original film. I know I'm probably going to be the only person with this one on my list. It is Clea Duvall's Happiest Season, um, uh, like I said, also on Hulu, starring Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis. Uh, this is a romantic comedy um, about a young woman who wants to uh, get married to her girlfriend, uh, so she goes to meet her uh, family's parents or her, her girlfriend's parents. God, I can't talk already, and we're only, like, 30 minutes into this. Um, and uh, finds out right as they're getting there that Mackenzie Davis's character has not come out of the closet to her family yet and has to uh, go through all of the pain that uh, would revolve around that uh, experience then. And I think all the performances in this film are absolutely fantastic. I think this is one of the best performances I've seen by Kristen Stewart. I love her. She's great. Aubrey Plaza, again, fantastic. Dan Levy. Uh, actually, this was the first thing I'd ever seen him in. Uh, I've now seen some episodes of Schitt's Creek, which he is obviously fantastic in. Uh, and he is hysterical in this film. Probably the funniest character in the movie. Um, and by the end of it, I thought that this movie had, um, beyond just a great rom-com, uh, which I can be a sucker for every once in a while. I, I think it's a really, really touching drama by the end of the film. And um, while it is a little, uh, I know there was a lot of pushback in the LGBT community um, about the ending, having it a little, be a little too easy, uh, a lot of people think. Uh, I think that's fully valid, but I think it's a very hopeful ending, and it follows the rom-com genre uh, in a lot of ways. That It's, it's nice to have an LGBT uh, rom-com. Uh, we haven't had a ton of those, and I thought Clay Duvall was great. And uh, Mary Holland, I believe, was the co-writer who was also uh, in the film. She was. I thought the script was very good. And it's shot in Pittsburgh, so um, there's that. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Happiest Season on Hulu is my number 19. Yeah, I also saw this one. It won't be appearing on my list. I thought that... Um, I, I, th I think that while there's a very good supporting cast, um, the, the, main, the main couple was just like, I didn't feel any chemistry between them. And I, I think that part of that comes from um, Kristen Stewart being a very, you know, I, I don't want to say uncharismatic, but uh, maybe maybe unanimated. Uh, She's which, a little aloof. At yeah, times. right. Which which sometimes works very well. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really know. I, I also felt like um, a, a lot of this, you know, a lot of the premise was kind of contrived, um, and then a lot of the the wrap-up was maybe, yeah, as you said, a, a little too neat. But, um, yeah, no, very good supporting cast. Dan Levy's really funny. Uh, Mary Holland also is really funny. So, yeah. Okay. 
Oh, I guess that means it's back to me now. Uh, okay, well, my number 18 uh, is the first of, I believe, three documentaries on my list, and it is Boys State. Um, this one was kind of kind of kind of unexpected uh how much i liked it but it's uh i i described it to floyd while i was watching it as uh if you took the character of borat out of borat and just kind of like showing these bizarre texans um just be like absolutely batshit crazy kind of exposing this like uh fratty culture within the sort of political um you know, like p- political science frat bro sort of thing, it's, which is like a, 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 a quadrant of society that I feel like is not really explored. Like these teenagers who are really into government and really douchey about it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's really entertaining. They, they sort of they follow a few characters um, the whole way through. Um, and... From what I've heard, a, a slight negative that I have is that from what I've heard, that the story that they paint with the documentary is kind of, like, not exactly what happened, like, according to the people who were actually there. Uh, which, I mean, it's fine. Like, they, they want to create a narrative, and they did a good job creating it. Uh, and it was, it was very entertaining, um, regardless. It reminded me a lot of going to, like, these, like, state chorus, uh, you know, like, festivals that I did in high school, and, like just putting a bunch of teenagers in one place to bond over a thing. Um, but then like also these weird, like subcultures start to start to grow, uh, within it. And I think that's a very interesting dynamic that I was happy to see, uh, explore. So yeah, boys state is my number 18. And that is available on Apple TV plus. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I did not get to watch that one, but it looked very good. All right. Moving on to my number 18 movie. Um, a movie that I know neither of you have seen, but I would be very interested to hear what you guys think about it. This is Pedro Costa's Vitalina Varela. Um, this was a movie that I that was kind of talked about in some critic circles, and it, it had made a splash at a couple festivals, and it's available on Criterion Channel, which is how I watched it. And I was absolutely blown away by it. Um, if you don't know, this movie follows um, a Portuguese woman who... Um, whose husband has recently died, um, and she, in, in a very abstract sort of way, the movie follows her. She kind of wanders around this very rocky, crumbling um, landscape where she lives in Lisbon, finding out things about her husband's past, um, secrets that she didn't know, and grappling with that, and, and also the way the community is um, accepting or not accepting her. Um, from the start of this movie, I had I had a lump in my throat and tears in my eyes. Um, it, it's a it's a very slow film. It, you have I, I wrote a bunch about it on Letterbox, but you you do have to be in a very a very quiet, a very meditative state to watch this film. You have to watch it at nighttime because it is set entirely at nighttime, very dark. Um, so if you want to fully experience the beautiful vision of these shadows that fall across her face and the walls, you really do have to see in a completely dark environment. Um, very slow. The camera is... I don't think the camera ever moves. It's always just static shots of, of Vitalina. I should say, none, none of these... Um, there, there, are no, there are no names of the, of the characters. It's all just the names of the, the actors transferred over. And it's a lot of the... Uh, a lot of his usage of uh, non-actors um, from, from um, Lisbon that come over from his different movies. 
Um, but I, I, I found it to be so therapeutic, so meditative. It just it, 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 sometimes a slow movie can hit you in such a way that it puts you in a trance. And this was one of those that I nothing like things just nothing was happening. That I could not take my eyes off of the screen. Beautiful cinematography. Uh, these these images of wires tangling across fences and this rich soil that she digs into with her hands and rocks planted in between wet bushes. Absolutely beautiful. Do yourself a favor. Check this one out if you're uh, you know got two hours and you're feeling in a pretty peaceful mood. Uh, very good film. All right. So my number eighteen is uh, a film that may be coming up later. Um, it is actually, I thought it was on HBO Max, and it's no longer listed there, so uh, find a way to rent this maybe somewhere. It is um, Eliza Hittman's uh, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, uh, a film that I uh, didn't think would make my list when I went into watching it, and that's why I always try to check my expectations out the door, because I thought this film was fantastic. Uh, I, it, For those of you that don't know, it follows... Um, a teenage girl from rural Pennsylvania who has to go to New York City to seek an abortion for an un- unwanted pregnancy. Uh, she is played by S- Sydney Flanagan, who I think gives one of the best performances of the year. I think she's fantastic. Talia Ryder plays her cousin who goes with her to New York. And this film, uh, it is fiercely political while at the same time being very practical about it. It is not trying to beat you over the head with an abortion message. It is trying to show you the reality of what it's like for someone uh, like Sidney Flanagan's character to have to go uh, go through with an abortion, and um, I think Hitman's cinematography uh, and direction with the camera is one of the biggest uh, one of the biggest pluses of this film. Hitman always is having the camera on a close up on uh, on Flanagan's character. She always uh, makes you feel trapped the way that she is, and I think that that is one of the most interesting ways to portray New York City um, throughout this film is that it is it is trapping for her. It is this massive environment, but we are always right there with her uh, through the pain of this, and um, really good supporting cast. Um, uh, Theodore Perel- Pellerin plays a really kind of weird, creepy guy uh, that they have to interact with over and over again, um, and yeah, I, I really love this film. I love the message of the film. Uh, the namesake scene is very, very emotionally impactful. But then, actually, my favorite moment of the film is just when there's a specific moment when Talia Ryder and Sidney Flanagan's characters just hold hands behind, a, like, a cement wall. And uh, it is just, in a movie that is so cold for so much of it and so practical, those little moments of humanity really pop out and uh, really emotionally impacted me. So Eliza Hittman's Never Rarely, Sometimes Always is my number 18. Okay, on my number 17. Um, Floyd, I was very interested that you said that uh, Big Time Adolescence was the better Pete Davidson film this year, and I haven't seen it, uh, but I am interested in it now because my number 17 is The King of Staten Island. Um, I found this to be very charming in its own kind of weird, like, uncomfortable Pete Davidson way. I don't really have that much experience um, with a lot of his comedy. Uh, I watch SNL sometimes, but, like, it's it's not like on the weekly rotation for me. It's not like, all right. Let's sit down on Saturday night and watch the watch the entire episode. You know, it's just kind of um, so. I'm not, I'm, I'm not super familiar with that. I'm not super familiar with the stand-up. Um, but this really kind of made me want to um, check more of it out. I think it's very very just like dry and sort of uh, I don't know, sort of dry and cynical. Um, in certain that's ways. absolutely his vibe and all of his stand-up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think I think in its way, 
it also deconstructs his persona. Um, Absolutely. Seems like more through the lens of him trying to figure his own life out rather than, like you said, um, Big Time Adolescence was about trying to help someone else uh, figure their life out. Um, but I still, you know, I don't think we're winning any Oscars here, but there are any, there, there are just some really funny like line readings here and there. I think Bill Burr is also very, um, a very interesting character in it. And I like how, I like how Pete sort of made it to, um, maybe not specifically for this purpose, but, you know, kind of to, to grapple with, uh, his dad's death in a kind of similar way. I mean, this feels semi-autobiographical, um, which was, you know, it's always a, a kind of fascinating thing to see that uh, put on screen and, and see that put into a performance. Uh, but yes, my number 17 is The King of Staten Island on HBO Max. And yeah, I, did, I was going to say, I did not get to watch that one. But yeah, talking about Pete's own story, I didn't, I didn't realize that when the film came out. But then I was read, reading into it. It seems like a very personal film, which seems very cool. Yeah, it's a film that, like I said, I enjoy. I think I would give it around a, a B plus um, if we reviewed it on the podcast. I very much enjoy it, and I agree. It's very interesting to to put this next to Big Time Adolescence because they they both deconstruct the Pete Davidson character, like you said, his persona, while Big Time is more, like you said, about trying to stop someone from becoming like that, and King of Staten Island is trying to about Pete Davidson trying to move on from uh, aspects of his personality that he doesn't like. And I will say. Um, a very very good ending uh, to yeah. King of Staten Island. I love the uh, the pursuit of happiness drop at the end of it uh, that they use in the trailer. One other small interesting thing that we can discuss just for thirty seconds is that this is one of the first major films to do the twenty dollar uh, premium rental uh, back in June hmm. uh, for twenty dollars. Um, I did not see it at that time. I waited till it was a little cheaper. I didn't. Uh, the only film that I did that way was Promising Young Woman. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I did not do the $20 thing for that. Um, but it was, I think it was one of the first ones after Trolls World Tour did it for the first time. So small little piece of, uh, trivia from this past year in terms of the release of that movie. So Matt, go ahead with your number 17. Number 17. All right. Diving back into the horror realm. I have got Remy Weeks, His House. Uh, you can watch this film on Netflix. It's available there. Um, love this movie. Love a good horror movie, um, and like a lot of good horror movies, they're oftentimes reflections of real-world social horrors, and this film is no less. Um, it's about a couple who escapes um, from war-torn Sudan, um, they're moving to England, and Matt Smith, who plays a sort of real estate agent, if you could say, is um, assigning them housing, um, and they um, live in this uh, tiny... Uh, poorly managed rundown area this this house um that the government just throws at them um and and is very stingy with what they require them to fix up what they require them to pay and whatnot um and as they start to live there we start to find out more about their experiences in sudan uh their experiences with with um uh, the rebels and their experience with uh, their family members and why maybe not all of them came with them to England um, it's a terrifying movie um, almost in the style of us sometimes uh, Jordan Peele's us but there are scenes of, of of people crawling around in the walls and hands reaching out of the light sockets and grabbing people in this sense of not being able to escape the trauma of your past but manifested in this house which is in of itself like a, 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 
um, a, a symptom of this system, which I, they do a great job of showing how much it uh, marginalizes these people who are coming over with already often not that much income to begin with uh, and forces them to start from square one uh, at the very you know kind of lowest of this England society um, Matt Smith who's a, you know usually a very endearing and lovable character you know I love him from uh, Doctor Who uh, plays a complete douchebag in this movie a very terrible person uh, you hate him uh, but the, the actors who play the couples here are just absolutely amazing and I, I love the way that the director found a way to um, reflect uh, the trauma of their past in very, very interesting um, ways that I hadn't seen in horror before. Um, it has a very haunting ending um, that kind of references uh, the collectiveness of that. Their trauma is shared in, between so many other people in Sudan, some people who didn't even get to travel over. Um, very beautiful movie. Congratulations. You're being released as asylum seekers, not as citizens, not yet. You will be sent to a home of our choosing. You must not move from this address. We are good people. Whether or not you're good people, it's not me that needs convincing. It's a palace. This entire house is just for us. It's going to be nice. You're going to be happy. As long as you can get along, fit in. Be one of the good ones. This is our home. All I can taste is the metal. We'll get used to it. was one that I wanted to see that unfortunately uh, I did not get to um, so yeah that's all I can really say about it um, coming in at number 17 for me it's a film that I don't know if it's gonna come up again but it is a uh, Cornell Mundruscozo I don't know how to pronounce his last name fuck pieces of a woman is my number uh, 17 film starring Vanessa Kirby which uh, will land her an Oscar nomination I feel pretty confident uh, I hope uh, this movie also co-stars Ellen Burstyn and Benny Safdie and Shia LaBeouf. Um, it is about uh, another pregnancy uh, film. Uh, I, I won't necessarily... Okay, I think it gives away in the in the promos enough. Basically, um, a home birth goes wrong uh, for Vanessa Kirby and Shia LaBeouf's uh, pregnancy, and uh, it's the fallout with both the family... Uh, with Ellen Burstyn and also the the two characters and the uh, midwife who was there uh, delivering the baby, and the the first thirty minutes of this film, uh, once the once her water starts to break and such, uh, are all is all one take one shot, and it's a very impressive start to the film. So like it is so much at the beginning of the film that the the title card does not occur until thirty to forty minutes into the movie after that one shot and. Um, yeah, it, it is a difficult film to watch on many aspects. It was a very uncomfortable watch, uh, first of all for the subject material, but then also to see Shia LaBeouf uh, be a, a pretty douchey um, partner, which we now know is the case in real life. He, I, you know, he, I've heard that he is, you know, trying to take care of that. So uh, good for him. Hopefully that's changing. Um, but he, he is quite good in this film, even though it is uncomfortable to see that eh, might not be acting. Um, too hard but yeah Vanessa Kirby is fantastic in this film she she really takes by the end of the film the, 
the pain of losing the child and she really wants to push back on the notion that she needs to get retribution for this and i think that that is a very uh poignant uh statement by the film once again like i said earlier the cinematography is fantastic and i was really really impressed by this movie it hasn't stuck with me the way i kind of wanted it to which is why it's only at 17 and not a little higher but uh but yeah pieces of a woman on netflix is my number 17 film of the year okay on to my number 16 uh no frills. I'm just going to introduce it. It's Hamilton. I don't need to say anything about this, but it is Hamilton. It's the filmed version of the musical that dropped on Disney Plus uh, in 2020. And, I mean, w- what can I say about it that hasn't already been said? You know, does it do anything groundbreaking uh, in terms of cinematography or camera work? Eh, not really. Uh, kind of. It's pretty cool. Um, but no, mostly I just... I, I love the way this story is put together. I love... I, I love the music. I love the performances, um, uh, imperfect at times as they may be, um, from from maybe certain composers who are very talented at composing, but um, less so, you know, gifted at uh, uh, traditional um, v- vocal vocals. I'm I'm trying to trying to be as nice as I can while talking about this. Um, he can't sing. He, is that what it is? Yeah. It's the it's the Lin-Manuel Miranda can't sing that well, but you know he still he he does a very good job acting, and everyone else is doing such a good job here. Um, yeah, it's uh I, I was able to see this back in twenty sixteen, I want to say, um, which was just a phenomenal experience uh, with the original cast, and uh, it was really just great to see it again. I'm happy that this is on Disney Plus, and happy that I'm going to get to uh, uh, go back and watch it. Uh, as much as I want. So yeah, Hamilton Hamilton takes number 16. I, I wasn't really sure. If you go on my letterbox, I didn't give it a rating just because like film version of a musical, how do you really rate that? Um, but I, I just sort of stuck it somewhere in the middle here um, because I think that it's very, I think, I think it deserves to be on this list and it's a very important uh, 2020 release. Yeah, I saw Hamilton. Um... I thought it was fine. I just went back to my letterbox. I saw that I gave it four stars. I would bump that down significantly. Um, I liked it. It just, um, apart from the singing thing with Lin-Manuel Miranda, I didn't think he was that good acting-wise in it. I loved David Diggs. Um, the guy who plays George Washington was great. And, of course, Chris Leslie Jackson. Odom Jr. Yeah. But something about Lin's acting, it's just, like, comes across as laughable sometimes to me. It's a little it's a little slathered on. Um Okay, we're moving on to me, though. Um, number 16, a movie we have talked about ad nauseum. It's Emerald Fennel's Promising Young Woman. Um, a, a fantastic film, a fantastic feature debut from Emerald Fennel. Uh, we did a whole podcast on this, on the uh, Twisted Mug Movie Journal. If you want to check that out, it was the three of us, actually. But in short, it's an electrifying debut. Um Carrie Mulligan, as always, as she always is, is uh, fantastic in this film. Uh, I didn't realize she was British until like a couple weeks ago, um, which is like a really testament to her uh, acting abilities because it didn't seep through at all. Um, but does a great job at deconstructing um, what society often refers to or views as the nice guys and shows that um, those people are oftentimes uh, some of the worst. And through a very interesting way, um, it's not it's not what you would usually, you'd usually expect, which a film might take a more... Um, action movie approach to this or even more of a sci-fi 
under the skin supernatural approach to it. It, it, it tackles it on very realistically, this issue of sexual assault and sexual, sexual harassment. Um, it does so in a realistic way, but in one that feels so, like, otherworldly powerful, and that is all due to the Mulligan performance. What she can convey simply through her eyes is astounding. Um, truly one of the greatest actresses that uh, that's living right now. Always love to see what she's doing. I would and, we'll love, and we'll love to see uh, what Emerald Fennel does next as well. So, promising young woman. Yes, so... Uh... As you can guess by that podcast, we go back and listen to it. I think it'll probably be coming up a couple more times. Uh, so coming in at number 16 for me um, is that that blurred line between movies and TV that we talked about. Uh, it is my favorite so far. I've not seen Mangrove, but it is my favorite so far of the four Steve McQueen small axe films that I have seen. It is Red, White, and Blue, as I said, written and directed by Steve McQueen. This follows John Boyega's uh, character who leaves a... Uh, a promising career in biology uh, to pursue becoming a police officer to really impact his community in uh, in London, I believe. Uh, all of the small axe films, I think, have their own merits. My least favorite definitely is Lover's Rock, which I know is a controversial opinion, but uh, education, education, I should have listed as one of my honorable mentions. I don't, I, I regret not uh, putting that in my honorable mentions. I think that movie is fantastic as well. Um, and like I said, I have not seen Mangrove, which I know a lot of people are also saying is one of the better ones in the in the cycle. But yes, Leroy Logan, uh, played by John Boyega, uh, it's basically him going through the trials and tribulations of um, being in the West Indie community um, in London and trying to make a difference on that end and how he becomes both ostracized within the police force for being a black man and also within his community, uh, in the West Indie community, for becoming a police officer. So he's stuck in between and really feels like he has no home. And one of the great driving things of this film is his relationship with his father, um, who has had many bad encounters with the police and almost disowns him, won't talk to him for becoming a police officer. Uh, and then what, what I really appreciate about this small acts um, cycle of films is that it really, um, it, as an American, it can be really easy just to think of racism as an American issue when it is good to have these reminders that it is it is not just an American issue. It is a, it is a worldwide issue that everyone needs to uh, be a part of changing, and I think that these small axe films are a great reminder of that for us Americans. Uh, this film is available on Amazon Prime. Uh, it has one of the most subdued and um, impactful last scenes of the year. When it happened, I was like, that's a great scene, and then it ended, and I was like, oh, it's one of those films that is not going to give you it's not a rah-rah ending. It is a very, this is the world, and this is how it's going to happen, and you have to continue to keep trying. That's basically the the, um, the message of the film uh, in the end with with um, with Boyega's character. And there is also, I should say, there is another excellent shot in this film uh, that follows John Boyega through a warehouse as he's trying to apprehend a suspect in a in a in a chase um, that is all in one shot. And the cinematography of all of these films. Um, are, are quite good, but specifically, I think, of this film, I really loved the stark um, lack of color. Uh, I think that's one of the best things about, um, one of the best things about Lover's Rock is the color and the cinematography, and I think that's also true for Red, White, and Blue, except it's the opposite. There is, it is just gray and kind of miserable and sad, and every time you think that Leroy is going to make an, another break uh, in this, in this horrible, uh, police community in 
towards black people in, in the West Indy community, it just it, it breaks your heart a little more and it just becomes even more gray in the cinematography. So Red, White, and Blue is my number 16 and my favorite of the four uh, Steve McQueen small axe films, which I have to say right now, hell of an accomplishment, even though I didn't love two of the films. Uh, I really, really loved Red, White, and Blue in Education, and I'm sure that Mangrove would have made this list if I had seen it. Yeah, um, and going off of what you're saying, it's also very easy to assume, to think about London, think about England, and assume um, of it as a, a, a you know, populated by mostly white people place, but I have never seen movies about this West Indian community in the 1960s being told like this, you know. Um, th- these are stories that need to be told, and it was very exciting to see Steve McQueen make these movies on his own accord. Also, very cool to see John Boyega doing work like this. Um, and he's fantastic. Yeah, if you've film. been keeping up, you know, he's kind of recently um, been calling out Disney, been calling out the treatment that he received on set, and that his character received within the Star Wars uh, plot of uh, episodes 7, 8, and 9, and how he did really get pushed aside. And, it, and it's a shame that that happened, uh, but unfortunately, it's not unusual in Hollywood. So I'm happy to see him really making movies like this that he's confident in. Um, so very cool to see. Also, this movie's only 80 minutes, so you can you can squeeze it in. It's one of the shorter ones of the... Uh, actually, uh, most of the small acts other than Mangrove are, are quite short, so you can squeeze them in pretty quickly. So, All right. Awesome. Uh, my number 15 is the second of my three documentaries, which I don't think that either of you have seen. It is uh, I Am Greta on Hulu. Mm. This uh, follows the story, not really a story, more so like uh, a... a, a a week in the life or a month in the life or something of, uh, of Greta Thunberg, the uh, Swedish uh, teenage climate change activist prodigy who has just swept the world and, and been such a big part. Um, who needs to see a good old-fashioned movie. That was a... Oh, I get joke. that, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I get it. Sorry, I was trying to make a dig at Trump whenever I can. <laughs> That, no, that's a good thing to do. You should always always try to do yeah. that. But anyway, you know, this sort of, it follows her um, kind of lifestyle and um, her, her personality. It does a really great job fleshing out this, um, this public figure who, you know, we've all seen and we're all aware of uh, to some degree. But, like, do we really know her personally? Um, and, you know, this, this just sort of sheds some more light on... Um, on what she is like and, and what, what it's like to be her. Um, a really important element of this that I, I, think, I think is important to bring up and that makes this an important documentary uh, is that she, you know, it, I mean, if you, if you know her as a public figure, maybe you know that uh, she's on the autism spectrum, but like also maybe you just don't. And so this sort of you know, without focusing, without making it the main aspect of her personality, it does kind of show, you know, how that affects her life and how that affects um, what she's trying to do and the kind of change that she's trying to make in the world. Um, this is this is a very affecting documentary. It's uh, it it feels hopeless at times because all of what she's trying to do is like, I mean, she is she is going to you know world governments and saying. You have to listen. Like you're ruining the you're ruining the planet, uh, and you have to listen to us. And they just don't listen. And so part parts of it are very hopeless, like that. Um, but I think it ends on a pretty hopeful note. Um, and it's it's definitely definitely an inspiring kind of documentary, and and something that I think will. Um, I, I think she's a figure that's definitely going to go places. 
um, just based on like what she's the amazing things that she's already accomplished uh, in her life. So yeah, I think she's a very important uh, figure, and I think this was a very important documentary to be made. Again, my number fifteen is I Am Greta, and that is on Hulu, I believe. Awesome. Yeah, I have not seen that, but uh, I'll have to check it out. All right, coming into my number fifteen, a familiar face. Um, I brought this filmmaker up when on our Best of the Decade uh, podcast. Her film Camera Person made the shortlist for my Best of the Decade, but her 2020 film Dick Johnson is Dead, um, which is available on Netflix to see, um, is a beautiful, heartbreaking, and very imaginative portrait um, of Kirsten Johnson of um. Kirsten, who's been a cinematographer for countless documentaries, Fahrenheit, 9-11, um, Season 4, to name a few of the big ones, who then turns the lens on herself. And it's a documentary about her um, aging and dying father and how her family is coping with that in very inventive ways of staging fictional scenes of his own death. And through this very outlandish lens, it's this beautiful look at how much time we have left with someone and when if accepting someone's eventual death is going to make that better and in some ways the short-sightedness of that of how assuming that that is going to help everything then realizing that at times it it makes it even harder and i love the way the movie kind of explores all of that um but there's some very beautiful sequences of, of um in, in darkly comic ways portraying him you know getting hit with an air conditioner unit um, falling and hitting him on the head or, um, you know, getting kicked and falling off of a chair in these, these small and subtle ways that end up in, you know, in this fictional sense of him dying. Um, but I, I think that Kirsten Johnson is just an amazing filmmaker. Um, I think she always finds really interesting ways to look at, like, um, stories that would be told in different, more traditional documentary formats from other filmmakers. And this has one of the most, oh, one of the most heartbreaking endings um, of the year. Um, if you haven't seen it, if you have seen it, you know what I'm talking about, but there's kind of a pulling the rug out from under you moment, um, you know, sort of reveal that um, it is very emotionally resonant. Um, I know Logan hasn't seen it, but I think it's something you would really enjoy, Logan. Very good movie. Dick Johnson is dead. Yeah, I really want to see this. It seems very inventive and and just unique. And yeah, I'm definitely interested in seeing it. Yeah, I I really need to see Camera Person still. I still need to see Christian Johnson's first film. Uh, On my watch list, I will watch it at some point. Uh, Coming in at number 15 for me is a film that I'm assuming is higher on both of your lists, but it's a film that I really, really love. It is Disney Pixar's Soul, directed by Pete Docter and Kent Powers. Uh, This is a wildly uh, inventive film from Pixar, and I think a, a, a much more palatable film for me uh, talking about life than Inside Out. I think that um, Inside Out for me is is another film directed by Pete Docter. It's a film that I really enjoy, but feels more aimed at kids, where Soul is not a kid's movie, and I will hold by that. I don't think that a, a 10-year-old will quite enjoy Soul. Uh, I think that this is a movie for, honestly, people our age. Um, I think that... Uh, it. it the premise of the film, obviously, if you if you are around during Christmas time when it came out, this was one of the this is one of the two that I mentioned big studio films uh, on my list. Obviously, a Pixar movie that's huge uh, out on Disney Plus, should say, um, where you know this this man played by Jamie Fox uh, 
goes into a coma and gets shot out. Instead of going uh, to the great beyond, he gets sh- shot to the great before after he jumps off the uh, the ledge or whatever, um, and meets uh, a young soul before it goes into a body, and that's played by Tina Fey. Uh, Twenty two is the character's name, and the film uh, it did a lot for me. Uh, it's 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 kind of paired with my number fourteen in a lot of weird ways, which I'll get to um, in terms of. Uh, anxieties that I have about death and I think that this is a very smart film a very uh, educational film uh, in a lot of ways it can be for young people Um, but in the end what I loved so much about it in a little just to get into a little bit of a spoiler because this is a huge movie I think like 330,000 people have logged in on Letterboxd so I think a lot of people have watched it the end goal of the film is to say that you are not your career and I think that that's a uh a really good message. I think that when when he has that conversation with the uh, the lead singer at the end after he gets back in his body and gets to play at the uh, the event, and she says, you know, this isn't going to fulfill you. It's kind of the same message as Synecdoche, New York. It's like you have to be a person beyond just what you want to do. So, um, yeah, I think that's a really great message. Uh, I love the screenplay by Ken Powers. Um, shout out to him. I will, spoiler, be talking about another movie uh, involving Kemp Powers later, um, so yeah, uh, also great, great animation in this film, just gotta point that out, like, incredible, Pixar is on just another level in terms of incredible animation, that I was able to watch this on a 720p TV, I believe, back home, and it still just looked absolutely gorgeous, love the production design, or whatever you want to call it, in terms of, uh, the great before and the great beyond, so, Disney Pixar's soul is my number 15. Okay. Moving on to my number 14, this is another one that I don't think either of you have seen, but it is something that you should uh, try to make an effort to see, and that is The Banker. It stars Samuel L. Jackson, Anthony Mackie, and Nicholas Holt in a really fun trio um, that just has this, like, really just wildly fun dynamic. Um, It essentially, it it follows um, Anthony Mackie's character, Bernard, sort of breaking into the housing market and the banking market as as a black man and um, eventually signing on Samuel L. Jackson and eventually signing on Nicholas Holt to try to, to, try to sort of help with this. Um, and I, I'm going to be honest, I didn't understand a lot of the, like, banking terminology that they were using throughout a lot of this, um, but still, it was just so damn entertaining. Um, it... it it just, it moves so well. Um, the score is so incredible. And this is where, at this point, I'm going to be really talking about the scores a lot. Because I think for these, like, this movie up is just all really, really good music. Um, I think that it's, there's certain, like, montage sequences that are really exciting. Um, and a lot of interesting ways. I was actually able to have a conversation with the guy who composed this, um, who is an alum of the school that I go to. He, That's awesome. Yeah, he did like some. Dang. He did like a workshop kind of, um, but did, like right before the semester started, um, and I was able to like ask him some questions about it. It was it was really cool. Um, H. Scott Salinas is the guy, and he does an incredible job here. Um, and yeah, I've I've been listening to this score. Ever since, got some really cool jazz stuff. Some really cool. Um, you enjoy this score four to five times a day. I enjoy this score four to five times a day, um, 
And yeah, the the only negative I would say that this movie maybe has is that not all of like the emotional beats quite land. I think there's a lot of like relationship stuff that is sort of kind of feels half baked. Um, but like seventy five percent of this movie is just a hundred percent on, and it is so much fun. Um, so yeah, that is number fourteen uh, on my list. The banker. I'm currently Apple TV Plus, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Yep, it is Apple TV Plus. So go and watch that if you haven't. Yeah, I, I haven't seen that movie. I, I think I saw the trailer for it. I didn't think it looked good, so I kind of just I kind of ignored it. But man, I might have to check it out since you're praising it so much. And I do love me a tasty score. Um, but yeah, speaking of music, um, my number fourteen film um, is one that maybe wouldn't have even maybe I wouldn't have even liked it that much if it had been released in another year. But something about this film's um, love of movement, of dancing, of the physicality uh, of music, um, and, and those interactions in a community, I found to just be, to bring a tear to my eye. And that is Small Axe, Lover's Rock. Um, the installment that, for some confounding reason, Floyd does not love, and it just baffles me that he it's does not, good. you know. I know I just I I just I want you to love it but you don't but you know what I know I'm Um, sorry you you win some you lose some uh but this movie uh takes a bit of a different approach than the other small acts films um and it it is a um all-in-one-day movie um that follows a a a party that's going on in a neighborhood and once again set in this West Indian community in England in the 1960s Um, but it's that interesting time period uh, between the 60s and 70s and they reflect that with the music as there's more disco tastes that come in towards the end of the film Um, and and it it kind of there's not really a sort of traditional narrative it's just kind of a more of a mosaic feel this entire party but it does zero in on these two uh, this one girl who then uh, couples off with another man in, at the party and it kind of follows their story um, post-party. But more than anything, this is just a... Um, a just Steve McQueen showing his love for the music, uh, the iconography, the overall vibe of this time period, um, and showing how um, there, there were these spaces where this community um, could carve out for themselves and... And, and 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 just exist happily and but he he doesn't do so small-mindedly like there are sequences where he shows that um other uh, white neighbors down the street at times coming in and threatening some of the people at the party but but he never does so in a heavy-handed way and he doesn't um i don't think the point of this movie um it's a different point than maybe you know red white and blue and mangrove this is one that is about no i i want to just put ha- straight up joy and happiness onto the screen and show you these people having a fun time and that's what it does so effectively and in a year where all we did was sit at home and i was missing so much uh going to places and dancing with friends and listening to music and running around um the way that he uses the camera to film these people's bodies is just absolutely amazing uh the kunta quinte dub needle drop scene where where this whole crowd kind of goes crazy and the camera is stooped down low and we see their bodies moving and wrenching and stomping is so invigorating and just life-giving in the movie 
it, it is absolutely beautiful. Uh, some amazing cinematography all the way around. So if you just want an instant fucking serotonin boost, Lovers Rock, I uh, would highly recommend. Yeah, um, I'm not going to poo-poo on this movie. I, I enjoyed it fine, uh, and I know that I'm in the vast minority on that. So go check out Lovers Rock, Small Axe by Stephen McQueen on Amazon Prime now. Uh, so I'm going to use a clip to introduce my number 14 film, uh, and I can explain then why it ties back into uh, Soul at my number 15 spot. So enjoy this clip. I see ghosts, y'all. I see ghosts. What happens uh, to all of us, man? Have you seen them too? Yeah. Uh, they had come to you at night. Huh? Storm and Nam comes to me down there every night. Now he talked to you like he talked to me. Come on. Come I don't on. think so. Come on. Fish up. Get in there, David. Get in there. Put your fist up, David. Come on. Go, oh, you too, Van. Go ahead. Fist up, man. Come on, Paul. So, as you heard there, Delroy Lindo in Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, uh, my number 14 pick of 2020. This is a film that I wanted to I, I, I wanted to push higher, but I also enjoyed being able to have this and Soul next to each other. Um, and I do think that there are, there are some things that I, uh, some complaints I do have with Spike Lee's film here. But um, just a real quick thing um, about this year. When this movie came out in June... On Netflix, it felt like such a breath of fresh air when we were three months into the pandemic. Not much was happening in terms of movies being released, and we got a new Spike Lee movie in by Netflix from Netflix in the middle of the summer. It was just super refreshing. But uh, I'm assuming that most people know the story of this film. Uh, it takes place uh, both in modern day and back in the Vietnam War in the late '60s. Uh, the late great Chadwick Boseman plays um, the only. Uh, of the five bloods that died back in Vietnam. They find this gold and eventually um, Chadwick Boseman's character died. Uh, and now in modern day, they're going back to Vietnam some 50 years later to recollect that gold. And um, it, they are, they're tagged along by Jonathan Majors, uh, who is uh, Delroy Lindo's son. Uh, the rest of the cast is Clark Peters, Norm Lewis and Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Um, with some good uh, supporting performances on top of that, but those are the the bloods uh, in the film. And what I found so impactful about Spike Lee's film, and I haven't rewatched it since, uh, mainly because of this, is because this movie, um, I think I've mentioned this before, like really triggered my fear of death um, in a lot of ways. And uh, real quick, Logan and Matt, have you seen this film? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll get some me, slight spoilers. Uh, let me just spoil it right now. It's my number 13, so I'm going to be talking okay, about great. it in like a minute. Great. Let's we'll have a little conversation about it then. So, um, the film obviously it was it was about death with going back and finding Chadwick Boseman's body because I, I didn't mention that that was another thing they wanted to do. They wanted to find um, Chadwick Boseman's remains, which is very eerie now that he died two months later after this film came out. Um, so it's it, it would definitely be an even more impactful experience I think watching it now that uh, unfortunately Chadwick Boseman is lo no longer with us. Um, but for some reason, I was having a conversation with somebody that night, um, and they were like, do you ever just, like, think about death? And I was like, not really, not, not a good thing to ponder on, I don't think. Um, so that idea was just kind of festering in my mind, um, 
once someone said that to me, and then I watched this film, and there is a certain point where one of the characters just steps on a landmine and just explodes and dies. And it was uh, the moment where that character, they're a bloody stump, both of his arms missing, about half his torso missing, still alive, but just clinging to life for as long as he could until he died. Just that visual and that fear on his face really triggered something in me. Um, And I have to shout out and respect Spike Lee for for really hitting something real in that moment. And then the rest of that scene where Jonathan Majors then steps on a, a landmine and they have to try to get him off without him dying and get through the rest of that that minefield without any more of the, the characters dying. Um, this is a film that really tackles death head on. Um, spoilers, a lot more characters die. I won't say specifically who um, throughout the film. But I, I love the message of the film. It came out during um, the tumultuous time in June after the George Floyd murder. Uh, felt almost perfectly timed in that way. A uh, new Spike Lee movie. Um, it's nowhere near my favorite Spike movie. I mean, Do the Right Thing, I think, is one of the greatest films ever made. So it's, it's The Five Bloods not being one of the greatest films ever made is not a, a knock on it. Um, but I love the supporting cast. Delroy Lindo is fantastic in the film. I'm hoping for an Oscar nomination for him. And uh, in, in, I think he is getting put up at lead actor, which might be a little harder to get into than supporting actor this year. We'll see. Um, but the the screenplay, I think, is very strong. And um, I love if you go into look look into the way they adapted it from um, a story not about a group of black men to Spike getting his hands on it and making it about that and about race and about a lot of other things. I, I really, really respect The Five Bloods and it is one of those movies that we talk about sometimes where it's one of those movies that I love that I don't want to watch again for a while because it, it really impacted me. So Spike Lee's The Five Bloods is my number 14 and is also Logan's number 13. So go ahead and take it away, Logan. Yeah, I mean, you took most of the words right out of my mouth here. Um, it's it's just, it's so good. Spike Lee is so bold. He's a very bold director and it, it means that sometimes he goes in a lot of weird directions that like I don't always agree with, but like at the end I'm still like, Hey, like I'm I'm glad you did that weird thing, even if it was even if it was off putting or something. And yeah, I, I mean, like you said, he never shies away from showing really disturbing imagery, um, in these gruesome imagery, uh, gruesome images. Um, but I think that also translates to the way that he writes. Um, or I don't know if he actually did he write this. He's a credited screenwriter, but there's four credited screenwriters. Okay. Yeah. I, I think that it's still... He, he doesn't ever mince words when it comes to his political message. Um, and I think that's important. I, it, it was a kind of weird thing this year to watch a couple movies that directly, like, name-dropped the 45th president, who I'm I'm not going to... I'm not going to name. Um, rather than just, Shit, like... Shit, man, that just got acquitted today, unfortunately. Yeah, fuck but. that. Um rather than just like kind of alluding to him and being like, this is a, the state that America's in or something like, no, it, Spike Lee's not afraid to name drop it. Other filmmakers like that have made films this year are not afraid to name drop this sort of like toxic American culture that he's um, created or at least exposed. And the fact that there are lines like directly about that person and about that administration, I feel like is, is really impactful and is important. Um, to the 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 whole kind of thesis of the movie um, and having Delroy Lindo's character wearing a MAGA hat yeah for I mean that's super film. like that is very prominent imagery and I totally agree with you about his performance I think he's amazing he, he just 
He, it's just such a complex character in so many that ways. monologue at the end of the film by him is yeah one of the scenes of the year there's like so much trauma there and so much just like complication with him um mm-hmm. and yeah i actually did watch this um after chadwick boseman had passed away so this was a very a, a, a very impactful experience hearing them talk about how you know he he was our charismatic leader and he was you know he would fight for all of us and Oh my God, it was just so heartbreaking to hear that about someone who is actually gone in the real world and still still just so hard to believe um, that he's actually gone. But yeah. And one more small thing that I think is, is worth mentioning with The Five Bloods is those flashback scenes in Vietnam in the 60s, they don't try to de-age yeah. uh, the older characters. And in a lot of ways, I think that hammers home the message of the film is that at least with um, with Bozeman's character, is that he will always be this old to them, and they are always aging. Yeah. So it is those weird things where, when someone dies, that's that's as old as they have ever been in your mind, and no matter what you are remembering, um, in terms of yourself, that that person is is staying that way. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, a very impactful creative choice by Lee. And yeah, in that absolutely. Way. So Floyd's fourteen and my thirteen's to five bloods. Yes. I was going to say, just to speak on this film a bit, the permanence of those memories, how they reflect that through the not de-aging, I agree with. Yeah, you know, this film was in my honorable mentions. Um, I I liked it. I I enjoyed it a lot. Um, For me, I felt like the screenplay was way overstuffed by the end. That's fair. I I think that's what happens when there's four screenwriters. It can happen, yeah. And two, this this is more of a personal thing, but I am always very resistant against tonal shifts in films. And it always takes me a long time to kind of come around to films that have kind of dramatic changes, um, i.e. Parasite. It took me a couple of rewatches to like even get fully on board with that. And even, even, even then, I'm still not like completely connected to that movie, which I know is baffling for like 99% of film critics. Um, but I, I did really like this movie. I, I, I feel like the Bozeman performance is almost sort of underrated, or at least a little bit overshadowed by his performance in Marbury's Black Bottom, which is, you know, undoubtedly very good. But my God, like you were saying, Logan, the, the charisma in this role is absolutely amazing. And I do enjoy how in those flashbacks, Spike Lee almost adopts this sort of like Apocalypse Now platoon, Vietnam War, war movie, Rambo even, vibe to this film, which I think was a, an, an interesting choice. Um, I enjoyed it a lot more than Black Klansman, which is just a film I, I didn't really like, um, unfortunately. But I think this was a, a, a very a very bold film. And I, and I like the, the choice with the, the MAGA component of Delroy Lindo, um, who I should say. The hype is real. Yeah. That performance is fantastic. It's such an interesting choice because I think maybe a lesser film would have used it with kind of a, um, a one single brushstroke to maybe completely write off that character. Um, but I think he does it in a really interesting way to deepen that character and and draw a link between you know trauma, um, illnesses, and, and people who are, are are praising a president who whose vitriol and, and, and rhetoric is used to uh, marginalize other people and and to kind of embolden the um, you know people who feel as if they marginalized by society a very interesting movie for sure all right moving on to my number 13 pick i'm gonna let a trailer introduce this one um so i'm gonna roll that here you go cody don't come in here yes i'm her sister she passed away 
No, I just need four days of electricity while I pack up her house. The other way. Other way. Is my son bothering you? No. Well, he's not supposed to talk to strangers, so. Good idea. So what you just heard there was from Andrew Ons. Um, I guess it's his sophomore um, film, or at least his first big one. It's Driveways, um, starring the mm-hmm. late Brian Dennehy, um, as well as another great kid performance from this year, um, from Lucas J as Cody, and Hong Chow uh, playing his mother in this movie, who is such an amazing actress. Uh, she was also in Watchmen that came out last year, and she's amazing in that. Um, this is a film about um, a mother-son relationship um, and they're moving to a different part um, of the United States, and it, it's a it has a very I, I likened this film to Columbus for Floyd. Um, Floyd didn't get around to watching it, but still, it, it has that sort of I wanted to. It, I'm sorry. It, it has that sort of calm vibe to it, and some of the cinematography is very similar in some ways. But it, it's about um, the moving into a house, and then the neighbor, played by Brian Dennehy, is a Vietnam War veteran, and the friendship that is struck up between the boy and Brian Dennehy. Uh, I mean, a very sort of classic. Uh, movie feel to it um, you know the boy helps him work through his pain and his trauma and then uh, vice versa it helps um, Hong Chao as well as Cody fit into this community and find their home I uh, thought it was just a really beautiful really sweet stirring film um, you know a, a small film that it feels like a movie that might have been maybe um something pushed by a big studio maybe 10 years ago or something but um kind of with the shifting demographics of what are the big studio films now this was kind of a smaller film but i felt like that um more minimalist vibe actually really did help it and just a very sweet movie i do recommend that everybody checks it out yeah it's a film that i i wish i had had a chance to see um but a film that is on my watch list that i would like to get a chance to watch at some point when i have a little more free time um, so coming in at number 13 for me is going to be my last big studio film, and it's actually, looking at the letterbox page, I don't think either of you has seen Lee Whannell's The Invisible Man, which is my number 13 pick. Um, starring Elizabeth Moss, uh, I had mentioned Shirley as my honorable mention, uh, one of my honorable mentions, and she's great in both of these films. So uh, everyone knows the general premise, I think, of The Invisible Man, a man who is invisible, general, general premise. premise. Uh, not very hard uh, to figure out. It's It's right there in the title, and... This was a film that another um, another film that I didn't anticipate loving from the promotional material, but once I actually got into the theater, which I should say this was the last film that I saw in the theater uh, back in March before uh, COVID hit really hard, um, it is a film that takes this horror premise idea back from the 30s and applies it to emotional trauma. Um, the way that this film takes Elizabeth Moss's character, who, again, the the first scene of the film, she um, already is just popping off the screen. She is so good in this scene where she is trying to escape um, her abusive husband's uh, house to uh, run away with her friend or sister, I forget which. Again, it has been almost a year since I've seen this film. But um, that is such an emotionally impactful scene. To then go forward and... Uh, in, in, in a normal situation, not in a horror movie, she would be, this would be a direct, you know, PTSD type thing. She keeps thinking that this husband who uh, we find out killed himself is following her and has figured out a way to become invisible. Um, 
and I think it plays on a lot of uh, really interesting ideas about emotional trauma, PTSD, and a relationship. And Elizabeth Moss does that so well. And Lee Whannell very smartly knows how to turn that into an actual horror film. And it works both ways. It works as both that commentary and also just as a straight up scary horror film. And um, of course, the movie is the is called The Invisible Man. I almost wish that it, it wasn't called The Invisible Man. So it didn't give away that, of course, there is actually someone following her. Uh, it is literalizing it. But um Regardless, I think that this is a very palatable, strong film, uh, and definitely the most impressed I've ever been by a Lee Whannell horror film. I, I, I really, really love this film. Uh, I hope that he has um, the ability to make more movies like this with, an, with a real strong emotional point, and um, I don't want to talk too much about what happens late in the film because uh, there are some twists and turns that, while are predictable in some way, uh, ways in terms of the movie being called The Invisible Man are also unpredictable. So, uh, yes, the fantastic horror film The Invisible Man is my number 13 pick. Okay, yeah. Uh, that is not one that I've had the chance to see, but I will be promptly adding it to my watch list. Uh, my number 12 is one that I'm I'm sure this isn't the last time it's going to come up, but it is Shithouse, directed and written by Cooper Wraith. Uh, it touches on so many feelings that everyone has experienced in one way or another at some point in their lives. And we feel these through the lens of two very complicated yet very familiar characters. Um, and Cooper Rafe, who wrote, directed, starred, produced it, everything. Edited. Uh, yeah, he's 24. He's got a hell of a career ahead of him if he can keep this momentum going. Uh, I was really impressed with the maturity in the performance, in the writing, and he just, I think he just understands a lot about what makes it work and how to how to really connect with an audience. So, great job, Cooper, and great job to Shithouse, my number 12. That's all I'm going to say about it, because I know it'll come up again. Yeah, good movie. All right, my number 12 film, uh, we've talked about it before here, it's Soul. Um, like Floyd was saying, uh, Pixar's stunningly animated uh, newest film. It, it really does blow my mind. It's so interesting. Like every year they or every every time they release a new movie, to see the advancements in the technology is it's just out of this world. Um, this film, um, like Floyd said, it, it doesn't feel like a kids' film in um, many ways. The subject matter is heavy in the same sort of way that Inside Out was, but it talks about it in a much more like. Um, adult, intelligent, more complex way that I don't think a lot of kids would pick up on. I mean, even for me, at times, I was like trying to you know, parse my way through this film uh, and the very beautiful imagery and what, what it was trying to say. But I think at the end, like Floyd was saying, you know, your purpose, uh, who you are as a person, you know, isn't directly tied to necessarily what your profession is. And um, the Jamie Foxx character, how once he's able to separate those two and then via the beautiful flashback with his father and kind of reconnect with that love for music um, again. I, I have some negativities with this film. I, I, I do think that uh, the Tina Fey performance as 23, I think it is, 22, um, isn't very good and just kind of feels like I've seen that character a zillion times in many other animated movies. And it doesn't, like, sometimes the tone of, like, this very, like, intelligent... Um, adult animated drama about death and life 
and then and then paired with that very silly performance, I felt didn't always mesh that well, especially with some of the humor in the second half. Um, but even with that, it's not enough to you know knock it off this list because I was really blown away, um, mostly by the imagery, specifically the scene where he does fall into um, the great unknown or you know whatever that in between state is. Is like I my jaw hit the floor. I was like, how I'm seeing this like in, in a big studio Disney film, this sort of experimental art. Um, and that's paired with the brilliant Trent Razor and Atticus Ross score, which just absolutely yes. fucking bangs in this movie. And John Batiste. John Batiste does all the New York segments. I think it's important yes. to mention. He, he, yeah. he is also uh, great with this. Um, but uh, the stuff for me that I really focused on was Trent and Atticus. Um, and I'll be talking about them again, some more of their music on this list. But yeah, uh, great film. They're awesome as always. talking about um so coming in at number 12 for me uh is a film that i am glad to be able to recommend to people it is something that i have not seen on any other list uh, of the best of the year so i'm going to roll a clip from the trailer that you probably don't even recognize uh for my number 12 on a new england isle in a good seaport town to me can you start over i'm confused it was confusing but you had to do it right. Oh no. I lost control. With a brick. You said it was a harpoon. So what are we gonna do now? Should've just called the police. Hello. Priscilla Conley? You have a small skiff, right? Could get a little grody. A body wash up on the rocks. Enid's business is bringing shame to the town. I try to protect these girls, but I can't do everything. What did she mean by that? It used to be real bad around here. Get away from me! If it's not Enid's girls, then it's our own daughters. We wanted something better for you. By starting up. Go on, drink up. Drink up. A lot of people underestimate women. That's why they can get away with a lot. Now, what do you know about the Connolly sisters? Real nice girls. Sure about that? <laughs> so, as you heard there, Morgan Saylor and Sophie Lowe and Danielle Crudy and Bridget Savage, Savage Coles blow the man down. Uh, it is my number 12 film of the year. You got a little taste of the sea shanty, blow the man down there uh, in the trailer. Um this film feels like a, a sister to Promising Young Woman in a lot of ways. Um, 
This film follows uh, two sisters who live in a small fishing town in Maine, I believe, uh, who one accidentally ends up being uh, almost attacked and killed by a serial killer and rapist uh, that is passing through the town. And in doing so, she kills the serial killer and rapist. And then they have to uh, discover the underbelly of this town and what is actually going on behind the scenes um, to keep up this facade of a nice small fishing town. And uh, Margo Martindale uh, plays... Um, I won't. I won't specifically reveal that because I think it it it, uh, it would ruin some of the film. But she she is a great supporting performance. I think probably if this film gained any more traction than it did, she would be nominated for best supporting actress. She is absolutely fantastic in it. And um, yes, likes like promising young woman. This is definitely a movie about um, men underestimating women and uh, men intending to do harm to women, kind of getting their comeuppets. And, and in a way that if you know Promising Young Woman, it, it, this movie is a little more satisfying, I think, in that way. Um, but yeah, the, the two main performances are really, really good. Um, and I, yeah, it's a film that stuck with me. Again, I watched this right at the beginning of the pandemic when it came out. Or no, actually, I watched it over the summer. It came out at the very beginning of the pandemic. Um, and yeah, it's it stuck with me. I It gave me the love for sea shanties before the TikTok trend. Um, which is fun. Good God. But, um, <laughs> but no, yeah, Blow the Man Down, a really great film on Amazon Prime that I hope more people can go and check out because I have heard no one else talk about this movie and it's fantastic. Okay, awesome. Uh, number 11, as we round down, I think we are cutting it off yes. here. Uh, and then our top 10 will be a separate episode. So uh, my last film that I'm putting on the list for this episode is one that Ryan already mentioned, Pieces of a Woman. Uh, this is a really interesting relationship drama, and what I love is that it doesn't shy away from showing you a lot of really hard stuff. Uh, as you said, Floyd, with the one-take intro, um, just an incredibly impactful scene, and an incredibly realistic scene. This birth, um, like, her acting, so weird, like, story that I'm probably not gonna fully go into, like, I've seen a birth, um, just, like, of a random woman that I didn't know at all. Um, just like watched it happen like 10 feet away from me. Wow. Um, and this is like so accurate to just how, how women in labor, um, you know, might act, uh, you know, and also just this, just this trauma is like incredibly, um, um, potent just the way that it is showed the way that it's shown. Um, and even though this stuff is difficult, it is ultimately really rewarding with where the film goes with her character, which um, is not... I don't, I don't want to say any more than that because it's really just such a beautiful um, ending for her. Uh, the movie presents grieving and healing in a lot of different ways, and especially its visual metaphors are really going to stick with me. There are some incredible uh, images that, like, it's not spoken, but it'll just show a bridge or a tree or some pieces of ice floating... Uh, and you just have to put together like what it is, and it's so uh, so impactful. Those those visual um, visual cues that also kind of tell the the story um, without verbally telling the story. I think Howard Shore's score is really nice. He's not a composer that I really click with a lot of the time, and I think part of that comes from uh, you know I I don't know this for sure, but I think the vibe that I get from him is that. 
the point of a score is sort of to blend into the background and you don't notice it and it kind of just sort of sets the tone, which is not, I think, always the most interesting. Um, and I think that's not really, you know, that's kind of what he does for me. He always blends into the background. He's very pleasant. Um, but I've, I've actually listened to this score a lot. I think this is among his better ones and I really, I really enjoy um, what it does and how it kind of sets the tone. So, yeah, number 11 is going to Pieces of a Woman. I'm pretty sure Floyd already said this, but it's on Netflix. Sidebar, do you not like the Lord of the Rings music? The Lord of the Rings music is good, yeah. I'm not, um, overall with the movies, I've never been, like, a big Lord of the Rings fan. I'm not, like, anti-Lord of the Rings, but it's just never been, like, it's not, like, there's kind of... Like, there's Star Wars, and there's Harry Potter, and there's, like, all these great, like, sci-fi franchises, and Lord of the Rings is just not one that I ever really specifically got into. But no, his score is very good for that, I should, yeah. uh, I should say. Lord of the Rings, special place in my heart, one of my favorite scores of all time. One day, when we talk about Hugo on CTP, um, I mean, it'll either result in a, a fierce fight between me and Logan over that score, or hopefully Logan seeing the light. Yeah, no, it's been it's been a really long time since I've seen that movie. I'm glad you brought that up because that was that was your number one of the decade. Um, and yeah, it's been a long time. I didn't really think that it was anything special, but I'm sure that if I rewatched it, I would get something more out of it as as an adult um, and as some someone who you know has more of a more of an awareness of art and film and that sort of thing. So yes, anyway, proceed with your number eleven, Matthew. I am proceeding with my number 11, which is a film that we talked about before. It is Minari, um, like Logan said. Um, it's a very delightful, very pared down, um, kind of like Driveways, which I just talked about. A very sweet, family, intimate drama. Um, anchored by all great performances. Steven Yoon, come on, once again, just killing it. This guy is great in, you know, just literally everything. Um, from Okja. Uh, you know his small role in that movie all the way to like glenn and walking dead he, he just he always, he always delivers he's always great um i love this movie's um exploration into like the american dream and what the american dream might mean to people who um aren't necessarily from america originally um and how oftentimes it can be a sort of intoxicating fantasy um as we see through the steven yoon character and how sometimes he um um, the, the, his pursuit of that dream um, in relation to his family and how he might um, overlook the one in favor of the other is very interesting. Um, you know, like Logan said, just an adorable performance from the kid here and, and the daughter and then the grandma and the wife, just, just all fantastic. Um, also just led by some very dreamy, um, hazy cinematography of these beautiful fields and the soil which they're planting and the hard work that goes into um, trying to uh, revitalize this land that has been overlooked by previous uh, farmers in the area. That was very interesting. Um, and definitely one of my favorite endings of the year. It kind of took me by surprise once the, you know, once the credits rolled. I was like, well, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting this so soon. But then I sat with it and it really did stay with me. And uh, that ending in relation to the title, the film Minari, once you see it, you kind of understand the meaning there, which I think is really beautiful. Um, and how a family like this could make their space um, and make a name for themselves in this land um, that when they got there just looked very barren and empty to them. I thought it was very, very beautiful. Yeah, one that I, I need to see uh, and hopefully will be on my list next year so I can cheat and put it on a list next year. <laughs> um, so I am going to introduce my number 11, the last pick for this podcast. Also, 
with a, uh, a clip, so enjoy this. Happy birthday, Happy Arlen. birthday, honey. This was your daddy's. Brought back from the war. I it's time to pass it on. It's the best present I ever got. Thank you. why people from two points on a map without even a straight line between them can be connected is at the heart of our story and knock them stiff. You ever think about how we ended up orphans living in the same house? I know what my daddy did. Some people would say it's just dumb luck. You take pictures? I do. I see a smile pretty enough to photograph, that is. Others would tell you it was God's plan. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That ain't no preacher. He's as bad as they got on the damn radio. When people look back on it, they had no other choice. There's a lot of no good sons of bitches out there. Excuse me, preacher. You got time for a sinner. I studied something. It's called the delusion. A belief that is untrue. It is our delusion that lead us to sin. Delusions! Some people were born just so they could be buried. What I'm about to do, I do because I have to. Not because I want to. And there you heard there, uh, Antonio Campos's The Devil All the Time. I know I'm the only one on this podcast that will have that on their list. I know that Logan and Matt are not huge fans of this film, but I absolutely love it. Uh, I, I, we, we talked about how we didn't, uh, change around our list too much. This was the only one that moved. This was initially in my top 10 and I moved it to my number 11. Um, good, (laughs) but I absolutely love this film. Uh, Rob Pattinson and Harry Melling deserve best supporting actor nominations for this movie. Uh, both fantastic. Uh, so basically the, the main gist of this film, if you haven't seen it or heard of it, uh, like I said, it's on Netflix right now. If you want to go watch it after I pitch it to you. Basically, it follows uh, two generations, uh, two timelines um, of people in Knock'em Ohio. Um, one through the father, Bill Skarsgård, one through the son, uh, Tom Holland, uh, basically of this repeating violence and just horrible things that uh, happened throughout this town, and I believe also in a town in West Virginia that intersect a lot. And like the title suggests, this film is about the devil all the time. This movie is tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. Um, But what I love about the movie in the end is that it eventually says that these things all start to cancel each other out in a lot of... Like, the the devil will 
come back for all of these people if you believe in that. And, and again, religion is... This movie very much tackles religion in a very critical way um, about the, the evil that can persist through the guise of religion and the guise of being pure. Yeah, in, in some ways, the, the, the religion kind of is the devil in yes, this movie. It, you know, it absolutely. is this force that like drives you know repression in these small towns mm-hmm. are very interesting and, and allows people of power like harry melling and robert pattinson for being heads of the churches at different times to do horrible things um and i think that the line that you heard there in the trailer with sebastian stan who has a great supporting performance in this film great part of the ensemble cast um is that some people are born just to be buried and i think that that's a very bleak and depressing theme of the film but also one that I really, really love. And um, I think the the biggest issue with this film is that Tom Holland is probably the least compelling character in the film, and he is the main character. Not to say that yes. I dislike Tom Holland's performance or that I dislike the character. I just think the supporting cast was much more interesting. Um, even Bill Skarsgård. I think Bill Skarsgård is very great in this film. Um, but yeah, no, Antonio Campos, I haven't seen, uh, I believe it's Christine. Um is it not Christine? I'm forgetting the... It's Christine. Christine. Yeah. Um, his, his film about the uh, the news anchor, which I won't spoil actually what happens in that movie, even though I know well. ultimately what happens. <laughs> um, but uh, I haven't seen any of his other films, but this movie definitely makes me want to. I, I so love the adaptation uh, here. I think this is one of the better adapted screenplays of the year. I know it won't get nominated at the Oscars, but it will be on my Oscar nominations. Um, I think that this film, in the end, it's very bleak. It's very depressing. Um, it's very critical of a lot of things, but I really connected with the the message of the film and and ultimately the uh, the depressing nature of it. That yeah, some people are just born to be uh, just born to be buried, and uh, yeah, the devil all the time is my number eleven. Man, that's heavy. Yeah, I I I I, I dislike this movie. Um, I wrote a whole thing about it for my uh, college newspaper, which you can see on Letterbox if you want. But I just felt like it was so freaking heavy-handed and. A lot of the people were very miscast. I thought that Tom Holland wasn't very good. And along with Bill Skarsgård, I just don't know what he was doing in this movie. I feel like it should have totally been a different actor. Um, and I feel like it was so indebted to... And there was there was too much reverence for the source material by Donald Ray Pollock, I think it is, that the story, the screenplay would have worked better if it diverged from that original story in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have no... I should say I have no ill will towards this movie. This is probably, you know, this... It might have made the list in another year. Um, and I think that a lot of the things that you were talking about, I totally agree with. I think that um, there are a lot of good parts of this, but the phrase that I keep going back to uh, from Matt's brilliant review of it is uh, a highlight reel of the world's depravity, which is just such which a... Which is awesome. I mean, that's, that's a great way to put it. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it that's a very concise way of, of saying what it is, which is maybe that works for some people. It didn't work for me. It felt a little scattered, didn't really feel very... Um, tied together in a lot of ways. Maybe if I watched it again, to be perfectly honest, sort of knowing what's knowing what's coming, knowing what the movie is trying to be, um, maybe I would like it more. But yeah, it kind of I I never felt very connected to any one of the storylines because it just hopped around so much. And I should say I I love the way they end up interacting in the end because they feel so disparate. They cross each other in tiny ways, like the Bill Skarsgård mm-hmm. character and the Jason Clark character are in the same diner at one point and a lot of it is said of like oh if one waitress went here and one waitress went there instead all, all of this wouldn't have happened those kind of things yeah. um and and just the way they interact i think is also super interesting and uh I, the scene in the church though with um tom holland and robert so Pattinson, good. 
one of the best scenes I think of the year. You know, isolated from the rest of the movie, I think it's absolutely incredible. Yeah. Best written, best you know. Acting, and, yeah. and again, I think this is a uh, a film also that really criticizes what the church does to women also in a lot of very interesting ways. Um, specific, again, specifically with the Pattinson and Melling characters who are, are, are both terrifying. And I, I, sh- I also want to point out uh, that I love Haley Bennett and uh, Mia Wasikowski in this film, uh, who, are, who are both su- those two women, uh, and Eliza Scanlon, those three women are the, are the people who are really, um, th- who the violence is occurred against by the church, by these men in the church. And I uh, wanted to point them out because I thought all three of them were also quite good. So that is going, on that depressing note, that is going to wrap <laughs> us up for part one of our top 20 films of 2020. Uh, thank you for sticking with us. And... Um, I think we'll wait until the end of next one to plug everything, so make sure to come on back for our top 10 films of the year. We will recap our 20 through 11 at the beginning of that if you want to hear all of our lists concise uh, from this podcast. So thank you so much for listening to this, guys. Please go on and join us over in part two for our top 10 of the decade. Thank you so much. I'm Ryan. Uh, top 10 of the year, yes. Top 10 of the year. You, did I say decades? Yeah. Damn it. You did, yeah. It's, it's, been a, it's been a while. But yes, uh, thank you very much for joining us. I'm Matthew. And I'm Logan. And we'll see you over in part two. Bye. Bye.